the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Mark. Look, this is going to be miserable for you. This is going to be a problem for you. So here's the warning. Many of us can look back at our lives and we can see that we got ourselves into a situation where if we had just heeded the first warning, we would have spared ourselves a lot of heartache and trouble. Warning number one was the first time the rooster crowed. God said it won't be until after the second crow that you will then know of your own condemnation. After the Apostle Peter betrayed Jesus, it wasn't until after the second rooster call that Peter would be aware of his condemnation. Peter didn't even recognize the first rooster call. Today, Pastor Gary shares how you should be on the lookout for the first warning. If you heed the early warning, you can avoid the pain that comes following additional warnings. If you can correct your ways at the first warning, you can avoid receiving the second and third warnings, often avoiding condemnation. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Mark chapter 15 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Now, by the way, make a notation in the margin of your Bible there in John chapter 2, verses 18 to 22, and I'll read it. What they're trying to quote is something that Jesus said, and John tells us what he said and then explains it. In John 2, 18, it says this, Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. So it's kind of a play on words where he talks about destroy this temple, go ahead and crucify me, but in three days it's going to rise again. And he speaks of of his own body rising from the dead. They thought he meant the temple there in Jerusalem that had been built and Herod had refurbished. They're saying, well, it it took dozens of years for this to be built. How can you raise it in three days? But it tells us that he was speaking of his body. That statement is used against him here. And you get these false witnesses who come forward and say, well, he said he was going to destroy the temple. You know, so he's this rebel. You know, he, he, it's, it's this sedition. He's against Rome. He's against us. Keep reading here. It says in verse 60, Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? You know, the, the high priest is basically saying, you know, defend yourself. Say something here. The high priest can't get witnesses to agree. They're false witnesses with conflicting testimony. So the high priest is getting exasperated here because he wants something 
to accuse Jesus of. And this is what he's going to accuse him of. He then asks him, are you not going to answer? What is the testament? What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, here's the direct question. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Are you the Christ? Now, the, the word Christ is just a Greek word, Christos. The Hebrew equivalent is Mashiach. Mashiach is Messiah. He's asking Jesus point blank, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? Now, up to this point, Jesus had kept his mouth shut. He is going to answer him, but please note with me, again, underline it in verse 61, but Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Have you ever just wanted to defend yourself and you start talking and the more you start talking to defend yourself, the more you make matters worse. I'm not asking really for a show of hands because I know that that's the fact for all of us. At some point, you've tried to defend yourself, and in the process of defending yourself, you've made matters worse. You know what I love here about Jesus? This is a wonderful, important lesson for all of us to learn. Sometimes your silence is your best witness. Sometimes your silence is your best witness. At this point, when I was studying through this chapter, I started looking through and researching through Proverbs to look at all the different places. You know, interesting, something I didn't find? Something I didn't find, actually, I don't know any place in the Bible where it tells you, hurry up and talk. No place in the Bible are you going to read where it says, hurry up and talk. A lot of places in the Bible, however, are going to say, keep your mouth closed. Let me give you a couple for those of you who like to take notes and see if maybe this will minister to you. I know there's a sigh, but we can all relate. Proverbs 10:19. when words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. Here's another one. Proverbs 17, 27, a man of knowledge uses words with restraint, and a man of understanding is even tempered. How about this one in Proverbs 29, 20? Do you see a man who speaks in haste? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And Proverbs 21, 23, he who guards his mouth and his tongue keeps himself from calamity. Amen? There are times that we should just say nothing. Now, it might irritate somebody else because they want you to speak up and defend yourself, say something, argue with me. But it's sometimes best just to say nothing. And here's the thing. Sometimes people come up to me and say, you know, I was accused of this or I was maligned in this way, and, uh, you know, should I defend myself? And here, here's what I honestly believe, that God is a better defender of us than we are. Yes, there might be times where, you know, we have to say something, but I think the least that we have to say, the better. And let God defend us. Because God does a whole lot better job. The truth will ultimately come out. Again, you know, not in every single case. Sometimes, you know, you're hauled before your boss and you have to give an account. You have to answer. But when we start to grovel and defend ourselves because we want to be made known as being right... We often make a mess of it, and God is a better one to defend us than ourselves. And in Jesus' case here, he just, he doesn't need, he's, he's being falsely accused. All these people are saying, they're misquoting him, and he doesn't respond and say, that's not what I said. Come on. If you're married, you know what I'm talking about. That's not what I said. Jesus doesn't do any of that. But when he's asked directly this question, are you the Christ? 
Are you the son of the blessed one? Notice Jesus says in verse 62, I am. I am. Now, in English, those two simple words seem innocuous to us, but he's actually echoing the same words of Exodus chapter 3 when Moses, before the burning bush, said to God, who should I say is sending me when the Egyptians ask and when the Israelites ask, and God responds from the burning bush, you tell them, I am has sent you. I am. And it is a Hebrew word that means the self-existent one. Well, you know the interesting thing is that the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, in Exodus 3, in that conversation between God and Moses, are the Greek words ego eimi. And they are the exact words that Jesus uses right here. Ego eimi. Jesus is saying... I am. I am the great I am. And they know that's what he means. Look at what he also says. He says, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. In other words, he's saying, you stand in judgment of me now, but there's a day coming when I will return as the ultimate judge. But because he says, I am, and to a Jew's ear, they would have heard that in Hebrew and Aramaic, actually, in Jesus' day, and they would have known that actually what Jesus is asserting is his divinity. He is saying, I am the self-existent one. I am the same one who from the burning bush said to Moses, I am. I'm that God. I am. And for that reason, verse 63, the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked, You, he's speaking to the rest of the Sanhedrin, have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Now, it's blasphemous to to his ears, to the high priest's ears, because he doesn't believe that Jesus is God. Of course, Jesus is saying the truth, so it's not blasphemous. But because they're hearing it with Jewish ears, they know what he's asserting. He is asserting his divinity. Jesus is saying, I am God. And for that, the high priest, not believing it, tears his clothes. It's a sign of grief. And he identifies it. He says, no, this is blasphemy. He says to everybody else in the Sanhedrin, you hear this is blasphemy? This guy, basically, has just proclaimed to be God. We don't need any more witnesses. It doesn't matter about the rules of order. It doesn't matter anything else. This guy needs to be condemned. What do you think? And it says, reading on, they all condemned him as worthy of death. Because blasphemy was a capital offense in, in the Old Testament law. Then... Some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Now, these are not Roman soldiers. These are the temple guards. These are the Jewish temple guards who stand guard at the temple court area. And they take him, it says, and they beat him. So imagine here that Jesus, God in flesh, is standing here. He's identifying himself for who he really is. And he is being spat upon. He is being beaten. The prophet Isaiah says that his beard is being plucked from his face. And the temple guards take him and they beat him further. And in Isaiah chapter 52, it tells us that he was beaten so badly. Listen to the words of Isaiah 52, verse 14. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form was marred beyond human likeness. What does it mean? It means, have you ever seen the Passion of the Christ? That picture of just how distorted his face was, that if you didn't know him, you wouldn't recognize him? That's what Isaiah says. 
Isaiah the prophet is saying that he was beaten beyond recognition. You would not have known it was Jesus. That's how horribly disfigured his face was from the beating just even before his crucifixion. Well, verse 66 says that while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. Okay, here's denial number one. Remember, Jesus told him in advance during the Last Supper, he says, you're going to deny me three times. This is number one. Verse 69, when the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow was one of them, and again, he denied it. After a little while, and Luke's gospel tells us that it was about an hour, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Now, Matthew adds in Matthew 26, the reason they said this, you're a Galilean, is because they said, Matthew says in Matthew 26, that his accent gave him away. See, he was, he was talking Aramaic, but he was from the north. And so it gave him away. He's a Galilean. The Galileans in the day were considered kind of country bumpkins. You can tell when somebody's from Bama. You can tell when somebody's from the south or from somebody's up north. You know, they're from Baston. Pack the kind of have a yard. You know, you can tell. They're not from around here. That's what they're saying here. We can tell you're not from around here. Your dialect, your accent is a little different. Well, at this point, verse 71... He began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. This is the third denial. And this time, it's so intense, he actually calls down curses on himself, the Bible says. In other words, literally, he says, I'll be damned. I don't know. I'll just, may may God damn me. That's what he's actually saying here. And he denies knowing Jesus a third time. But he he, he literally, he, in, in bringing curses down on himself... He, at this point, is so emphatic in his denial that he actually says in this moment, I might as well be condemned to hell. I mean, this is how much he is completely denying Jesus here. And it says in verse 72 that immediately the rooster crowed, notice, the second time, the second time. And then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice... You will disown me three times, and he broke down and wept. Now, this is an important thing that Mark captures. None of the other gospel writers capture this part, where Mark talks about how the rooster crowed twice, and that Jesus said that before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Why is this so important? Because Mark gives a detail that helps us to get a glimpse of the compassion of the Lord. The mercy of the Lord. How so? Somewhere between denying Jesus once and denying Jesus the third time, the rooster crowed once. And it was as if it were, to use a military term, kind of a shot across the bow. Rooster number one has crowed. Did you hear that? I'm sure as Peter is denying Jesus, he heard the rooster crow first. But after the third denial, the rooster crowed the second time. It is this picture for me of this window. God loves to give us the window that sometimes we get ourselves into a wrong place with him. We get ourselves into a sinful place. You know what he often does? He kind of shoots across the bow and he lets us know, look, this is going to be miserable for you. This is going to be a problem for you. So here's the warning. 
Many of us can look back at our lives and we can see that we got ourselves into a situation where if we had just heeded the first warning, we would have spared ourselves a lot of heartache and trouble. Warning number one was the first time the rooster crowed. God said it won't be until after the second crow that you will then know of your own condemnation. You know, church history tells us in the cruelty of human behavior that when Peter did this, that every time Peter got up to preach until the day he died, there was always someone in the crowd that went, that's what church history tells us. Can you imagine that? That somebody's always, you know, just chirping like a rooster to remind you of your failure. And this is why he weeps, because he knows he's, he's let Jesus down. Let's carry on through verse chapter 15. It says, now very early in the morning, so here's this, the second, this is the morning daylight trial, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. Now, he's asking Jesus this question because when the, when the Sanhedrin has condemned Jesus, they, they condemn him for what? What was the offense? Blasphemy. If they go to the Romans and say, hey, Jesus here claims to be God, Pontius Pilate is going to yawn. He's going to be, who really cares? Because as a Roman, he's worshiping many gods. He could care less if Jesus claimed to be God because he's a polytheistic guy himself, Pilate. So what the Jews have to do is they have to go with another angle. Pilate is not going to condemn Jesus to death for blasphemy under the Jewish law. But if the Jews can convince Pilate that Jesus is about insurrection, about sedition against the Roman Empire, now there's cause to kill him. So, so they've gone with the accusation that Jesus claims to be king of the Jews. And if he claims to be king of the Jews, this is a threat to the emperor, to Caesar. So while underneath the Jewish law, they've convicted him of blasphemy, they're not going to use that one with Pontius Pilate. They're going to use insurrection here. He is seditious against the Roman Empire. He claims to be king of the Jews. So that's why Pilate asks him this. Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Again, why? Because human nature is instinctively, we want to defend ourselves, not Jesus. He lets the Father defend himself. He just stands there, and Pilate was amazed. In addition, because, I mean, most people in this place right now, they would be groveling for their lives. They would be asking Pilate, please don't kill me, please, please, please. I mean, they would be begging. They'd be down on their knees. Jesus not going to do that. This is part, part of the will of the Father. He's not going to stoop like this and grovel because his, his resolve is he's going to the cross. He knows what is before him. It says in verse 6, now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did by, by swapping prisoners. 
Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. See, Pilate, Pilate's not dumb. He knows that it's just out of envy that the chief priests teaches the law of the Sanhedrin. They don't really have a leg to stand on here. This isn't a serious verdict here. And so, and so Pilate knows this, but now he's in this quandary where he, he doesn't want there to be riot. He wants to please the people. Matthew's gospel, it adds here an extra dilemma. Matthew's gospel tells us that Pilate's wife comes to Pilate, gives him a note, and says, I had a dream about this guy, about Jesus, and don't have anything to do with him. And so now Pilate's just like, I want to please the people. I want to please my wife. You know, I want to please Rome. I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. He's in a mess. And history tells us that Pontius Pilate was a ruthless, bloodthirsty guy, and he was ready to be recalled to Rome on an instant, and he's also reluctant to crucify Jesus because he knows if he keeps slaughtering people like he has been doing, Caesar's going to recall him to Rome. That's actually what ends up happening. After the crucifixion of Jesus, history tells us that Pontius Pilate was recalled to Rome by Caligula, the emperor, the emperor at the time, and Eusebius, the Roman historian of the 4th century, says that Pontius Pilate ends up committing suicide. I mean, you try to live with the burden of what you've done here. So Pontius Pilate was a tormented man, very, very sad, very tragic on, on many different levels, and he's in this quandary here. So there's this Passover custom. I have Barabbas, who is a traitor. He is a terrorist and uh, to Rome. Do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? Now he's thinking the crowd is going to want Jesus because he's still somewhat popular, but the Sanhedrin whips the crowd up. They go around saying, you, don't, you, you want Barabbas, you don't want Jesus. Jesus this, Jesus is that, and Jesus said this, Jesus said... And so they're stirring up the crowd and gets the crowd whipped up here in a frenzy. And so they end up, verse 12, What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them, Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd. Notice that. Wanting to satisfy the crowd. Who am I going to please? My wife, Caesar, or the crowd? I'm going to please the people. That's what he ends up doing. What a dangerous thing we do when we make decisions solely on the basis of wanting to please people. Don't be a man pleaser. Be a God pleaser. I'm saying that as application for all of us. Obviously, Pilate is not a, a follower of God, so he's not interested in being a God-pleaser, but it just how he acquiesces to, the, to satisfy the crowd. So what does he do? He released Barabbas to them, and he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. At this point, now, he, he's like, well, I guess i got to do something here. And they're shouting for Barabbas, and they want Jesus crucified. There's, a, there's an irony here in the play on the names, and I know many of you know this. Barabbas in Hebrew means Bar, son, Abba, father. Barabbas means son of the father. How ironic that Pilate is going to release the wicked son of the father and have crucified the holy son of the father, the pure and righteous son of God. Jesus will be handed over, flogged, and then crucified. And he did it all for you and me. Jesus did. 
It was within his power to completely vacate this scene, but it was his love for you and me that compelled him to the cross, and may we never forget that. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been walking us through the book of Mark. More than the other gospel books, Mark seems to have been written in a way that communicates the fast-paced course of Jesus' ministry, helping us realize it was only for a short time. While the book of Matthew focused on proving Jesus as king, Mark focused on Jesus as a servant. Jesus repeatedly displayed his servant's heart through the various miracles he performed, caring for others above himself. Jesus' example of a servant is something that we should be humbled by and should follow in his footsteps by serving others. We'd like to take a step in that direction by serving you in some way. Can we be praying for you? We'd love to know what's on our listeners' hearts. If you're willing to share with us, our email address is prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd love to meet you, too. Come join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online, and you can find all the information you need on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you'll find additional teachings from this series in Mark and other series. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to hear Pastor Gary on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know But still you know You're not